Well, propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation are terms that are frequently bandied around in today's political discourse. It seems as if those on all sides are pointing the finger at each other, accusing one another of spin, deception, and disinformation. At times, those who serve in the government have accused run-of-the-mill, ordinary citizens of spreading dangerous misinformation. At other times, average, everyday citizens have accused some of our nation's most cherished institutions of wantonly spreading disinformation. According to a recent poll, the public's mistrust, skepticism, and suspicion isn't just confined to government. No, trust in the media is also at an all-time low. According to the polls that are out there, 56% of Americans agreed with the statement, journalists and reporters purposefully mislead people by saying things they know are false or are gross exaggerations. Nearly 60% of Americans think most news organizations are more concerned with a political ideology or position than with informing the public. It seems as if we're living in a time when people that hunger and thirst for the truth, frankly, they don't really know where they can turn. Since no one has a limitless amount of time to research every topic and issue, and since none of us are omnicompetent in every area of life, the reality is we're going to have to rely on some sources for our information. But again, I raise the question, who can really be trusted to tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Well, in Jesus's day, there were some very similar dynamics at play as well. You see, there were all of these religious leaders running around, making all these competing truth claims and seeking to micromanage the lives of ordinary people. Leaders from these various religious factions were in constant conflict, and they vied for the people's allegiance and trust. You see, they wanted to be the authority. They wanted to be the sources. They wanted to be the ones that are interpreting God's word, that is the law, and they wanted to be those all-wise theologians who handed down their edicts to the ordinary people from their ivory towers. See, it was in the midst of all of this conflict and infighting within Judaism that Jesus launched his ministry. And as Jesus entered the scene and began teaching the word of God, as it says in the scriptures, with authority, he immediately began to lock horns with the two most influential religious groups of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Throughout the Gospels, if you read through them, you'll see that Jesus repeatedly clashed with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Jesus sounded the alarm. He cautioned all people who would listen to be on guard because in the mind of Christ, what the Pharisees believed and taught and what the Sadducees believed and taught, those things were extremely dangerous. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus warns his own disciples and says, 
watch and beware of the leaven, that is the teaching, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But who were the Pharisees? What did they believe? Who were the Sadducees? What did they believe and teach? And what was it about their teachings that were so dangerous and destructive? Starting this week, we're going to launch a brief two-week sermon series entitled No More, No Less. Beginning this week with the Pharisees, we're going to explore what made these factions so dangerous, what they taught, what they believed, and how we can be on guard in our day against the religious elites that are all around us. So this morning, let's turn our attention to the Pharisees and really kick off this exploration by asking the question, who were the Pharisees? Well, it's important to understand that in the time of Jesus, in the first century in Israel, there were three main groups within Judaism. There were the Essenes, but the two more prominent groups were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in order to understand what the Pharisees believed, it's helpful to contrast them with what the Sadducees believed, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two groups that were diametrically opposed to one another. That's how you know how spiritual I am. <laughs> Are we good? Can you hear me? Okay. Crank it back up how we just had it. That was pretty exciting. That woke a few people up. What I was saying is in order to understand what the Pharisees taught and believed, it's helpful to contrast that with what the Sadducees taught and believed. So let's start this morning with the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees, this group within Judaism during the time of Jesus, it's important to know that they were most closely affiliated with the temple in Jerusalem and its worship. When you read about the Sadducees, you'll see that the Sadducees were highly educated people, oftentimes aristocratic. Uh, they were very much high status. And again, as I mentioned, they were really wrapped up in temple worship in Jerusalem. By the way, that is why to this day, you don't live beside any Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees movement, their religion was so bound up in the temple in Jerusalem that when it was destroyed in AD 70, it wasn't long before they ceased to exist really as a group within Judaism. It's also important to know about the Sadducees that the Sadducees were very theologically liberal. And one of the main reasons for that is they did not accept all of God's word as revealed in the Old Testament. You see, in your Old Testament, you have 39 books. But of those 39 books, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And since they rejected the writings and rejected the prophets, you could see how they would end up being very theologically liberal. But today, we're not going to be talking about the Sadducees. We're going to be talking about the Pharisees. So let's contrast that group and now ask, what did the Pharisees believe? Well, in contrast to the Sadducees, the Pharisees were not so much closely associated with temple worship, although they did worship in the temple. They were more the religion of the synagogues. 
In fact, to this day, any expressions of Judaism that are still in existence can trace their lineage back to the Pharisees. This is really the stream of Judaism from the time of Jesus that has continued over the course of time to our day. And the Pharisees, again, while they did worship in the temple and offer sacrifices there, they were more connected with these synagogues that were all throughout the land of Israel. And the Pharisees were sort of known as being very pious, blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth kinds of people. They were theologically conservative, and they really sort of had the favor of the average person living during the time of Jesus. The Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, didn't just believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. No, they accepted all 39 books of the Old Testament. They had the same Bible that you and I have today as far as the Old Testament goes. And the reality is, if you contrast and compare what the Sadducees taught with the teachings of Jesus, and if you contrast and compare what the Pharisees taught with the teachings of Jesus, you'll see that the Pharisees had a good deal in common with what Jesus taught. The reason for that was because Jesus and the Pharisees read and studied the same Bible, and as a result, many of their beliefs, not all, but many, were aligned. You can see this in the book of Acts, in fact, because the apostle Paul well after he had become a follower of Jesus, says in the book of Acts, as a Christian, I am a Pharisee. So on the one hand, the Sadducees, the highly educated, aristocratic, theological liberals of the day within Judaism, and the Pharisees, the blue-collar, pious, salt-of-the-earth, theologically conservative group of the day, those were those two main groups vying for the people's allegiance during the time of Jesus, and the Pharisees were much more aligned with the teachings of Jesus. But if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus has some of his harshest words of criticism for the Pharisees. It's interesting if you think about it, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, the Pharisees had a lot more in common with what Jesus taught than the Sadducees, but Jesus repeatedly, time and again, gives his harshest uh, warnings and rebukes and criticisms, he gives those to the Pharisees. So why is that? Why do the Pharisees clash in such a horrible way with what Jesus taught? What was it about their beliefs, their teaching, their practice that Jesus thought was so dangerous and so destructive? Quite simply, it is this. The Pharisees added to God's word. The Pharisees added to God's word. You see, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, way back during the time of Moses, right before God was going to reveal his laws and his decrees and his commands to his covenant people, right before he did that, God, speaking through Moses, gives a stern twofold warning. Deuteronomy chapter four, verses one and two say this, and now, O Israel, says God speaking through Moses to the Jewish people right before the law is given, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. 
And here's the key verse for today. You shall not add to the word I command you, nor shall you take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. It's pretty simple, isn't it? God gives this big disclaimer through Moses right before revealing his law and his commandments to his people. He says, I want you to get this straight. Before I give you my commands that are binding, that you are obligated to follow, I want you to get something crystal clear here. You do not have editing privileges and rights when it comes to my word. You're not allowed to do any math. No adding, no subtracting. I'm giving you my perfect holy word. Receive it, follow it with everything that you have, but add to it no more and take away no less. Similarly, in some of the last words of the last chapter, of the last book in our Bible, we come across a very similar sounding warning. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, we read this. This is at the end of your Bible. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from them, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's pretty clear. God says, when it comes to my word, do not add, do not subtract. And yet the Pharisees did exactly that. They added to God's word. Well, how did they do that? Did they take the Hebrew Bible and then write more scripture and sort of staple it onto the back? No, they didn't do that. Instead, what they did is over the course of time, they allowed their traditions, their inferences, their assumptions, and their interpretations to be built up to such a degree that they eventually usurped the word of God. Let me explain what I mean. There's a simple, straightforward, general command in the book of Leviticus. God gives this command to his people living under the old covenant, Leviticus 23, verse 3. And here is a simple command that the Pharisees had in their Bible. It says, there are six days where you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. So the Pharisees would read that in their Bible, and then they would begin thinking to themselves, well, what exactly is work on the Sabbath, and what is not work on the Sabbath? What can I do on the Sabbath, and what can I not do? What is it that constitutes breaking the Sabbath, sinning against God, and working on the day of rest? And what are some of those actions that I simply have to do? And so over the course of the generations, maybe Rabbi Akiva said one thing, and then maybe Rabbi Hillel said another, and then Rabbi Shammai said another. And as the years and generations go on, they have this 
just exponentially growing body of traditions that mushroom and become absolutely massive until a short verse like this that's pretty general, kind of a bullet point, Leviticus 23.3, eventually the Pharisees squeezed out of that command, catch this now, 39 kinds of work that you were forbidden to do on the Sabbath. We're gonna put some of them up here on the screens just so you get an idea of what these are. But the Pharisees added 39 categories and catch this, with each of the 39 categories, guys, there are hundreds of subcategories. They kept adding and adding and adding. And they thought to themselves, boy, if God would have been thinking when he wrote this Bible, he would have included this and he would have included that. And they kept filling in all these blanks until they arrived at 39 categories of work with hundreds of subcategories within each of those 39. By the way, it's helpful to know this because I think it will help with our understanding of the Gospels. Quick example, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that was born blind. Jesus heals him, but there's something a bit unusual about John chapter 9. You see, ordinarily, it seems common that when Jesus healed someone, he would simply speak the word, be healed, and they would be healed. In fact, there were even times when Jesus performed a miracle when the person that was sick or blind or crippled wasn't even in his presence. Jesus simply spoke the word and they were healed. But not so in John chapter nine. John chapter nine, Jesus does something kind of odd, kind of unusual and makes us scratch our heads. When the blind man crosses paths with Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, receive your sight and go on with your life. No, if you read John 9, Jesus spits on the dirt, mixes it together to make mud, anoints the blind man's eyes, and then once they are rinsed, his sight is returned. Well, why did Jesus do this? It seems the best explanation for this is Jesus did this because he's poking his finger in the eye of the Pharisees here. Because among those 39 categories of work that you could not do, according to the Pharisees, one of them was assembling, and Jesus assembled a medical salve, and therefore, in their minds, was breaking the Sabbath. Second, you are not allowed to knead anything the way you would knead dough to bake bread. You are forbidden to knead on the Sabbath, and since Jesus spit and mixed the sand together with the saliva, he kneaded, and in their eyes, broke two of their understandings of what you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Bottom line, over the course of time, the Pharisees added and added and added these traditions that eventually superseded the written word of God. Don't want to belabor this point, but I want you to wrap your minds around how much these traditions had exponentially grown by throwing two figures out there. The first figure is this. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Jewish Bible, there are 39 books, the same 39 books we have. They're in a different order. And if you have a Hebrew Bible, it reads right to left instead of left to right like we do in English. But we have the same Bible as the Jewish community today. Now, in this Bible, in the 39 books of the Old Testament, there are about 419,000 words. That's the total count, 419,000 in the Old Testament that God authoritatively gave to his people. 
By the time the Pharisees wrote down all their traditions in something called the Talmud, it totaled over two and a half million (laughs) words. What is it that Jesus found so dangerous, so damnable about the Pharisees? It is simply this, through their traditions, their inferences, their assumptions, and their own convictions, they added to God's word. And that's why Jesus rebukes them so harshly in Mark chapter 7, where he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and Jesus says to these Pharisees, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Catch this now, teaching as doctrines. In other words, teaching as authoritative, universal, binding the commandments of men. And then Jesus simply says this to sum all that up to the Pharisees. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I wonder if you've ever known any Christians that leave the word of God in order to hold to the traditions of men. I wonder if you've known any Christians that have taken their own kind of fuzzy inferences and their own convictions and then use that as a litmus test for how spiritual other people might be. I have a friend who's a pastor and he tells a story about years ago when he was driving with a church member in his car. See, years ago, it was very common if you visited a church on Sunday morning for the first time, it's a common practice. Later on that same day in the afternoon, people would go out from the church in pairs to visit those that visited the church. And maybe they would share the gospel, they would answer questions people had about the church, and it was just a way to help them get to know more about the church. And on one particular Sunday, this friend of mine that's a pastor was driving with this church member to go visit a new guest. And as they were driving, they went through one of the ritzier neighborhoods in town, and they drove past some just beautiful, big houses. The church member looked at the houses that they were driving past, and he said to my friend, the pastor, no one has any business living in a house that big. There's no way a Christian would ever live in a house that big. The pastor said, is that right? He said, absolutely. And the pastor said, well, how many square feet do you suppose God will let you have before it becomes sinful? And without missing a beat, the church member, just like that, said 3,500 square feet. That's the cutoff. (laughs) 3,500. Anything north of 3,500, and you are sinning in the sight of God. And then this pastor couldn't help himself. He couldn't resist. He said, and may I ask, how big is your home, incidentally? And of course, the church member says, 3,480 feet. So (laughs) he was barely scraping by before it became sinful. But we encounter people like that, don't we? 
People that think, well, if God would have been thinking when he wrote the Bible, he would have included more details. Let me fill in the blanks for you and help you really understand here. Jesus says we need to be on guard against that because that's adding to the word of God. Last time I checked in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 31, you know what it says? It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have a house that's smaller than 3,500 square feet and you'll be saved. No, it says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. By the way, it also does not say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and drive an economy car and you will be saved. Doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and never touch a drop of alcohol and you will be saved. Doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and homeschool and you will be saved. Doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and public school and you will be saved. Doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and my view of the age of the earth and you will be saved. And it does not say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, my understanding of the end times, and you will be saved. No. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Within the church, I think the reality is all around us, there are all these external pressures for us to add to the Bible, to acquiesce with those things that other men and women insist we must also do or believe. And to make matters worse, not only is there a lot of external pressure to conform and acquiesce, I'll go one step further. I believe in each of our hearts, we've got a little acorn of a Pharisee there that if we're not careful, it will grow into this big oak tree. Because the problem's not just out there with other Christians that tend to add to God's word. No, the problem is we too, if we're being honest, a lot of us have a tendency to want to add to God's word as well. So in the remainder of our time, Let's turn our attention to something practical. Let's turn our attention to what we can actually do. Okay, the Pharisees added to God's word. Great, so what? What can we do about that? Let's turn our attention to three ways we can guard against adding to God's word. First way we can guard against adding to God's word is simply this. We need to know our Bibles. It doesn't matter if it was when Jesus was being tempted by Satan or when he was engaged in debate with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. Whenever Jesus was tempted or engaging in some debate, yes, Jesus was the God-man. Yes, Jesus was full of wisdom. Yes, Jesus was brilliant. But his strength came from knowing the scriptures. Read Luke 4. Look at the temptation with Satan. What's Jesus' defense through all that? He says three times, it is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus knew the written word of God. If you look at his disputes with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he oftentimes says things like, have you never read in the scriptures where it says thus and such? Jesus knew his Bible. He read it regularly. He studied it regularly. And here's a warning for you. If you're a Christ follower and you don't, if you're not regularly putting yourself under the preaching of the word of God, if you're not 
reading the Bible with some small group or class, if you're not doing a read through the Bible plan, maybe through version or something, if you're not doing that, the reality is you're an easy target for Pharisees. Because when someone comes along and says, well, you actually need to do A, B, C, and D as well, if you don't know what's in the Bible, you have no way of knowing if they're full of it or not. If we want to be people that guard against adding to God's word, it starts with knowing the Bible. Then when you know the Bible and someone comes and says, you have to do this, that, or the other thing, you'll know, is this a binding command given by Christ? Or is this just some addition, some man-made tradition? Second, if we want to guard against adding to God's word, I would submit to you this this morning. When God gives a bullet point, do not turn it into a dissertation. By that, I mean, when you're reading through the Bible, sometimes you have commands that are given that are highly detailed. There's a lot of particulars. There's nothing ambiguous or general or vague about it. And I don't want to lower the bar when that's how the commandment comes to us. But on the other hand, there are also other commandments that are more broad and general and more are like principles. One example of this is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the apostle Paul says the following, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Folks, that's not a dissertation. That's a bullet point. I mean, Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke your children to anger, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Can you tell from that how much sugar you can give your kids before you're a bad parent? Can you tell from that at what age your kids should get their first iPhone? Can you tell from that when they get their first iPhone, what is an appropriate amount of accountability to help them learn how to use technology in a way that's wise and not throwing caution to the wind? No, you can't because it's given as a bullet point. And the church gets into all sorts of trouble when we take our own understanding and our own convictions about those bullet points. Have them for yourself. That's great but don't then take them and hang them over another person's neck in the church. When God gives a command, if there's particulars and specifics, don't lower the bar, but if it's a general command, I would also caution against raising the bar. Do not make a dissertation out of a bullet point. Third and finally, one of the key ways we can guard against adding to God's word, I believe, is to stand our ground. When we encounter men and women that are trying to squeeze us into their mold, and that comes in so many different ways to us, we should not acquiesce. I don't think we should do a whole lot of humoring them. According to Scripture, if it's not something Christ commanded, and we need to stand our ground and guard our liberty. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle Paul implores us to grow a spine 
with those that would force us to be exactly like them. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is if there is a command in the New Testament for believers, that is binding. We don't have liberty to disregard or ignore that. We're going to talk about that next week. We're not to subtract from God's word. But the flip side of that is with these man-made traditions and customs and convictions that people have, if they come to you and insist you need to read this version of the Bible or else, Paul says... We should stand firm, grow a spine, and maybe, maybe even call out that hypocrisy at times as well. Well, in this world, there is so much misinformation and disinformation out there. There's so many different self-appointed sources of truth vying for our allegiance and trust I believe in that kind of a climate, we need to be very careful to listen to Jesus's command to beware of the leaven, that is the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We need to be on guard against adding one letter to God's law. May it be said of us here at Grace Fellowship that the things Christ commanded we take with the utmost seriousness, but the things that are traditions of men, we stand firm and stand our ground, and we do not allow others to add to the word of God. We're gonna be people that are people of the book, that are gonna be cautious, keep our head on a swivel, and not allow anyone, any movement, any person to try and persuade us to add anything to God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray. Lord, there are portions of scripture to me that are confusing and complex, but I thank you for the portions of scripture that are pretty clear and straightforward. Lord, uh, Deuteronomy 4 and Revelation 22, that's straightforward. Don't add, don't subtract. Receive my word with all seriousness and sincerity, but add nothing more or take away nothing less. God, conceptually, it's easy to understand, but it can be so difficult to integrate into our lives. Would you teach us how to do that? Would you give us a hunger and thirst for studying your word and knowing your word and for being unapologetic about following your true commands and at the same time, Lord, standing firm and refusing to acquiesce, to be squeezed into the mold of others who are adding to God's word. God, would you help us to stand firm for our liberty and help us to know the difference between what you've commanded and we should not take away from and what others have added. Help us not conflate the teachings and traditions of men with your timeless, authoritative, perfect, holy word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.